Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Weekly Market Insights podcast. Thank you again uh, for listening. We hugely appreciate your time. And I'm delighted uh, to be joined today by Remy from the multi-asset team. Uh, Remy, who, of course, as you all know, uh, is responsible uh, for GMA, amongst uh, other books of business within the multi-asset platform. So, Remy, welcome and thank you again. Just by way of in brief introduction, uh, as far as last week's uh, economic data is concerned, uh, just a few things to highlight. The U.S., we've seen a positive uh, upward surprise in terms of the consumer. Retail sales were rising more than expected. Um, we actually had a similar uh, picture also in the U.K., uh, particularly when you look at wages, which continue to grind higher but 3.6% year-on-year is actually the fastest pace of growth that we've seen since, wait for it, July 2008. Uh, and the unemployment rate, stable at 3.8%. We'll come back to that theme during the course of the call. Uh, and also noteworthy was, in a similar vein, retail sales strong uh, in China, uh, with a 9.8% year-on-year increase in June. And that is important in terms of how the Chinese are seeking to rebalance the economy by encouraging uh, domestic consumption. And we might come back to that as well. So generally speaking, the benign liquidity environment uh, playing out at a consumer level, as well as the relatively full employment level playing out, underpinning a level uh, of growth. And against that backdrop, We've seen in the last week or so decent performance from risk assets, uh, which have continued uh, as we speak. And we're also in the midst of the U.S. earnings season, uh, which is going, I think, okay at the moment is how I would describe it. Um, But in particular, uh, we've seen uh, some good numbers uh, from the financial sector. They're the early reporters on Wall Street. But really, it's too early to comment in detail. We've only had about 14% of S&P 500 companies uh, report thus far. Um, and the only kind of strong negative, which clients may have noticed, was Netflix, uh, where their particular business model is, all, of course, very dependent on subscriber volumes. Uh, and the shares fell by 11% last Wednesday when their net subscriber ads disappointed the market. Uh, if you think Amazon Prime, um, what Disney are planning, etc., that sector is becoming much, much more competitive. But Remy, coming to you now with that overall view, clearly uh, markets have done very well, uh, risk assets on a year-to-date basis. And I know that the multi-asset team has just had its monthly GAC meetings. What were the headline conclusions from your asset allocation deliberations last week? So the headline conclusions is to um, stick with our neutral position on equities. Um, So in terms of generating risk right now, we prefer carry strategies. Um, We believe that this is a more attractive area to generate returns. And the reason for preferring carry strategies to just outright equities, so growth strategies, is because of this tug of war between cyclical risk and central bank policy. So let's dig into that a little bit more because it's a very, for me, that is absolutely key in terms of how markets are walking the tightrope right now. So on the one hand, uh, we have a cycle that looks a bit weary, and and Keith and Azad have definitely been commenting on that. And yet on the other hand, we have uh, central banks that are doing their job and responding. And, you know, most notably of all, we've had this dramatic pivot year to date by the US Federal Reserve. So first of all, just what's your lens? uh, What's the team's lens on the cycle? So 
At the moment, the cyclical indicators, the models are negative. Um, right. There's no doubt about that. We can't argue against it. So the business activity data is quite weak. Um, the Even if, as I said a moment ago, consumption will always lag, but con consumption indicators at least are, witness the data I've just read out, holding up a little bit. Yes, absolutely. So the consumer is in a good place with liquidity so low and financing costs very low. It is a good environment for the consumer, but manufacturing, industrial activity, it's very weak. And a lot of the manufacturers are facing issues around trade. So despite the fact that demand is not that great, you also have headwinds with regards to trade, and that's generating a lot of uncertainty, and it's preventing businesses from really spending. So that's having an overwhelming impact on manufacturing activity. Have we seen yet much evidence of businesses realigning their supply chains, mindful of trade friction? It's happening very slowly. Right. And those things tend to take a number of years. And at the moment, businesses are strategizing, they're re-strategizing as opposed to making big changes in with regards to their models. So... Cautious in terms of the business investment cycle, the moment late cycle activity being sustained by robust consumer. So we've got that on the one hand, but slowdown definitely being our, our conclusion. And Keith has definitely written about that. Going to the other part of the balancing act, though, central banking activity to offset that. How do you read the Fed right now? So we expect the Fed to validate what the market's pricing by cutting rates next week. We expect the Fed to cut by 25 basis points. Um, we also expect the Fed to maintain an easing bias. Now, this is, to some extent, generating um, a move towards risk assets. It's encouraging a lot of investors to move up the risk curve because, to some extent, what the Fed is trying to do, we don't know whether they'll be successful, is to put a floor on global activity data. And what we have right now is a Fed that's thinking about global growth as opposed to just US growth. But, which is in itself, uh, I've got President Trump in mind of um, America first, and yet it does seem as if actually America first has attached to its agenda rest of the world too in this context. Is that fair? Absolutely, because what happens in the rest of the world is starting to have an impact on the US. Um, a lot of US companies are global manufacturers and we are seeing it in their earnings. Their earnings are starting to disappoint. Right. And what about the ECB? So we have the ECB on Thursday. We don't expect to change any um, changes in policy this month, but we do expect Draghi to prepare the market for a change in September. So we expect the uh, meeting when Draghi, during Draghi's speech, we expect him to be very dovish and pave the way for rate cuts in September and more QE. And Christine Lagarde's appointment really means continuity? Absolutely. We believe that Christine Lagarde right now is focusing more on fiscal policy as a consequence. In order to get that fiscal policy to come through, QE would be helpful. And in practice, though, Remy, what else can the ECB do? Are you expecting just an increase in purchases from here? So we are expecting not just an increase in purchases, but the language matters. So the ECB making a firm statement that they will maintain QE, given where inflation is, makes is a strong commitment for the market. It encourages the market to not fight the ECB 
We're used to not fighting the Fed. At the start of this year, the market did try to fight the ECB. So that communication argues against fighting the ECB. Yes, you're right to highlight that because I remember uh, at the outset, of course, Mario Draghi famously said, we'll do whatever it takes. And that really did cause uh, a huge sea change in terms of market sentiment. And then I, we, we tend to always gloss over the Bank of Japan, perhaps un, unfairly, but right to assume that it continues same as it is? Yeah, the Bank of Japan is in a little bit of a difficult situation right now because we do expect a VAT hike later this year. Um, Abe won the upper house elections by a decent majority, so we expect that to go through, which makes things policy a little bit challenging. So we don't expect a change in policy till the autumn. We think that the Bank of Japan needs to see that VAT hike follow through and look at the impact it's having on domestic growth conditions before making a change in policy. So therefore, again, it's a benign uh, environment for, for for liquidity at this point. So the risk to that is suddenly some kind of inflation shock, which we're not expecting. But is there, are there any other risks that we should have in the back of our minds when talking to clients? Well, the market to some extent has front run the Fed. So I think right now the Fed is the most important central banks because so the question isn't whether they will cut rates, but how aggressive will they be and how aggressive will their communication be? So the 25 basis point cut next week is priced, but what we don't know is how far they intend to take it. Um, We can have a Fed that's more um, precautionary to some extent that's slightly more cautious with regards to cutting rates, I think there is a situation where there might be a little bit of a tantrum where the market forces the Fed to be more aggressive. So that is the kind of risk that is more likely over the next couple of weeks. Right. Because of, But then you could also argue it the other way, which for the sake of argument, were they to surprise the market and go further uh, to buy 50 basis points, uh, then the market would equally potentially have a temper tantrum about, oh, what have we not seen that they're worrying about, as it were? Absolutely. So it's a very, very difficult um, policy environment for the Fed. I think what we don't want right now is a communication error. Right. So the rationale for the cuts and the rationale for the extent of the um, communication is very important. And then... Just lastly, before we go into, uh, in practice, what you're doing within portfolios, there's been a certain amount of debate about uh, the so-called Phillips curve. Uh, and what that is, of course, is this measure that, that uh, identifies when uh, unemployment uh, becomes so low that there's an inflationary consequence. And what's remarkable about where we are now, I quoted the UK number, 3.6%, but um, based on measured employment levels, I think the US were at virtually record levels of employment. Clearly, there are more people coming back into the labor force, which helps from time to time. But we're not seeing that traditional inflationary push from labor into aggregate inflation statistics, even though both in Europe and, and as I highlighted in the UK, that 3.6% year-on-year growth number, even though uh, the earnings growth in isolation might suggest that we were getting some cost um, uh, inflationary pressure. How do you explain that away? So in terms of why the Phillips curve isn't working 
or, you know, question marks around that particular model. I think what we need to think about is the fact that the world is becoming more global and the deflationary forces that exist right now are structural and technology has a big part to play in that. Also, we have to look at the fact that when we do see deflation, to some extent, the average person in terms of their nominal wages has actually improved. Right. So to some extent, there are arguments with regards to whether the Phillips curve is leading to whether that model's working with regards to higher wages. But the reality is there are other trends in play. Which are keeping a lid on aggregate inflation. Absolutely. But but it remains that whilst we don't have it as a core view, that infla- unexpected inflation would be a big shock to the system because it would have to realign central bank thinking. It would be. But central bank thinking has also changed. Um, I mean, the Fed confirmed that in January in that right now the Fed are willing to take a risk on inflation. I think the um, the thinking has been that over the last 10 years, policy to some extent has not led to inflation. And it's important to um, realign markets' expectation of inflation, so to re-anchor our thoughts around inflation. So we definitely have a Fed that wants to stimulate, lead, um, generate inflation, and to some extent they are willing to take that risk. Which, of course, then is supportive in terms of uh, the kind of assets that you're interested in. So let's let's turn now to what you're doing in portfolios, um, given your income responsibilities. You mentioned that you were overweight carry. Uh, in practice, what does that mean? So in terms of carry, what we like are those assets that are yielding um, at the moment. If central banks are aiming to reduce the cost of financing, then those assets that are delivering a yield in excess of that are attractive and they're very appealing. And so that leads us to favour credit, corporate bonds, both high yield and investment grade corporate bonds. But we also like currencies um, that also have a higher yield, and that's typically emerging market currencies. And it's associated with, with that view are you relatively sanguine about the dollar? Uh, do you expect further dollar appreciation or for it to have more flatline here? Because obviously flatlining would be more helpful for, for EM. Yes, it would be nice if the dollar would um, depreciate a little. Um, but at best, we expect the dollar to stabilise. It's a stabilize. competitive game right now. Exactly. Um, the reason why we expect the dollar to stabilise as opposed to weaken aggressively is because US growth is still better than the growth you have elsewhere. Despite the weakness, um, in a relative sense, growth is better in the US. And interest rates are certainly a lot higher in the US than in a number of other um, countries for example, in Europe. So it's very hard for the dollar to weaken aggressively unless the Fed is very aggressive. Right. And then um, moving to um, to equities more specifically, um, what's the, the mix of your portfolio? Within, you said neutral overall, uh, but within equities, any particular biases? So we still um, favour the US. Um, it's a market we've liked for a number of years right now. And the reason being is that we think that the US is most exposed to Fed policy. And so that should allow the US market to continue to outperform. And it is still delivering one of the best earnings growth. Um, in terms of taking some cyclical risk, we prefer the emerging market 
markets to areas like Japan. So Japanese and emerging markets are very cyclically exposed. They do well when global growth improves and they do badly when global growth is um, softening. But we like the EM because it gives us a little bit of a call option on the dollar weakening and it gives us a call option on trade improving and valuations are better. And obviously there's been a lot written over the years about emerging market convergence through time. And yet, of course, they're very dependent on the global trade cycle. To what extent uh, can emerging markets stand on their own two feet? Or you say that their you know, better opportunity set is better than, say, Japan, which I've joked in the past as being the world's largest cyclical stock, perhaps unfairly. Um, but emerging markets also have that dependency. How do you, how do you disaggregate between those, those two things, weakening global trade and yet attraction in their own right? So within emerging markets, those um, companies that are more exposed to domestic growth trends, or shall I say the companies that are more exposed to Chinese growth trends, are have an upper hand. Um, but typically, if we look at the emerging market equity universe, a lot of the companies that we are investing in are still exposed to US and European growth trends. So we are seeing that um, dislocation happening slowly, but the bulk of the EM universe is still exposed to global growth trends. And so this is in order to capture, to identify those areas of the EM universe that can stand on their own, one will need to pick the securities. Be active. You need to be more active. Yeah, well, well that, that clearly is um, how we position ourselves in the market. Um, and then within developed equities, um, you talked about the US. Uh, what about what about Europe right now? So interestingly, we're more, I would say, more sanguine on Europe. So in the last two years, we've tended to avoid Europe, particularly because we've had a very negative view on European banks. But relative to if we dig deeper... Presumably what you were saying earlier, I'm sorry to interrupt, but about uh, ECB is that there's no sign really of much respite for the European banks against that backdrop. Absolutely. I think the um, ECB policy is very negative for European banks in terms of their earnings. Um, So we continue to avoid European banks. But if we look away from European banks, a lot of cyclical companies in Europe are very attractively valued. They've been hit by global growth trends. They've been hit by the manufacturing, um, durable goods orders, what's happening with regards to trade. Um, These companies are trading on very attractive multiple And again, similar to our view on EM, a lot of these companies provide you with a call option on things improving. Right. So therefore, again, it's a case for being active, but we can see some interesting opportunities uh, emerge, not least because of that bedrock of activity that European consumption is offering, uh, even if the German industrial economy uh, is still very much at the mercy of the global trade cycle. Absolutely. Great. Um, And just lastly... um, Uh, You alluded to it uh, a moment ago when talking about emerging markets. The Chinese story and the domestic story and then how different emerging markets get uh, wrapped into that. How do you see that opportunity set? So the Chinese um, domestic story, we are seeing it play out. It's not helpful for the rest of the world because it's not the kind of growth we're used to. So the stimulus is working its way through the Chinese domestic economy, despite the weakness in um, external growth. 
it will. But that's part of their plan. On that is part of the plan. It's yeah. just that as investors, we have a short <laughs> attention span and we want things to improve rather quickly, whereas this is a more long-term plan. Right. Um, I think it will be very um, helpful for the rest of EM, but it's likely to have a more meaningful impact for the frontier markets in EM. So markets like Vietnam, for example. So kind of Belt and Road type association. Absolutely. As opposed to markets like Korea. Um, Korea is still a global manufacturer, whereas it's not manufacturing the right kinds of goods that China wants right now. Right, that's a very interesting disaggregation. Remy, we're out of time, so thank you hugely for, for that. That was great. Um, if I can just summarize uh, the call, the headlines are that as a result of the asset allocation debate last week on the team, uh, the view is to remain neutral with equities, um, but your overweight carry trades the team is very sensitive to the juxtaposition between the trajectory of the economic cycle on the one hand uh, and central bank rhetoric, uh, monetary easing uh, in, the, in the near term anticipated from the Fed, of course, at the end of July to provide that benign liquidity backdrop to allow uh, carry trades uh, in a sense to be sustained and also to make them, of course, relatively attractive given the compressed uh, sovereign rate environment. Um, with Mindful that against that backdrop that, of course, uh, a lot is already priced in. And were there to be uh, an inflationary shock, which we're not expecting, but were there to be, that would, of course, uh, dramatically alter our view. And then finally, with inequities uh, still uh, favoring the US, uh, acting as that locomotive, uh, but mindful of the opportunities that are now there in Europe, uh, particularly in non-financials, which of course is what uh, the underlying teams are focused on as well. And likewise, uh, focused on emerging market opportunities, where again, that same uh, stock selection uh, is important in terms of value add, uh, because one's wary of the global economic cycle vulnerability that EM has, uh, but wanting to maximize the potential that comes from opportunities that are either exposed to China or the ongoing growth domestically within respective emerging markets. So with that, Remy, again, thank you very much indeed. Much appreciate your time. And everybody, that concludes this week's call. Thank you for listening. <laughs>